together. And uh, at the conclusion of the prayer, I'm going to invite you to join in with me as we close the prayer together with the Lord's Prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the blessings you have given us. You have blessed us with this nation, the nation of Canada, Lord. You have blessed us with so many things because of this land. You have blessed us with prosperity. You have blessed us with security. Lord, you have blessed us with the freedom to worship you. And so, Father, we today pray that we would not be guilty of taking these things for granted. But we thank you for them, and we pray, Lord, for the blessing of this land. We pray also, as you've instructed us, for the leadership of this land. We pray for our Prime Minister. We pray, Lord, for the upcoming elections, both federal and civic. We pray, Lord, that your hand would be upon them and that you would guide this land through them, Father. We thank you as well, Lord, for your touch in our personal lives. And, Father, there's no time this morning to sit around and share all of the personal circumstances, the situations and trials that are being faced uh, within this congregation, but you know them, Lord. And so as a body, we come together now, Lord, to collectively lay our worries, our burdens, our anxieties down at your feet. We pray, Lord, that you would take them from us, lift them from us, and help us, Father, to trust in you each and every day. We also thank you, Lord, for your hand of healing on those individuals in our congregation who are in need of it. We thank you, Lord, for, uh, for laying a hand on John Wolfe this past week. Thank you that he can be here this morning. And we thank you as well, Lord, for visitors. We thank you for uh, long-lost friends who are home. We thank you that you brought Travis Falk home safely, Father, from his journeys. And we pray that your hand would be upon him. Uh, we thank you as well, Lord, for being with us here this morning. And so, Lord Jesus, as you taught us to pray, we now simply lift up our prayer to you. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It has been a couple of weeks since our last installment from the series on David, a man after God's heart. But I trust that the story is still familiar as we pick it up now in 1 Samuel and chapter 18, one which I've entitled Friends, Foes, and Father-in-Laws. Now, before I go any further, I will just give the admission that I had entertained the idea of naming this sermon, What to Do When Your Father-in-Law Tries to Kill You. But, I don't know, it was just kind of long and cumbersome, but I thought I'd share it with you anyways. And uh, as we go through the sermon this morning, you'll see why. Now, it was exactly 10 years ago, the summer of 2005, that this event transpired in my personal life. Now, even though it's a decade that has passed, I still remember this day as though it were yesterday. It was hands down the most nervous I have ever been in my entire life. More nervous than I would be before shooting a set of rapids. More nervous than when I went skydiving or bungee jumping. You know, more nervous than anything and so the question has to be asked, what had me so nervous? Well, it was the day that I was going to ask Leanne's father for his blessing to ask for Leanne's hand in marriage. And so, as you can well imagine, especially for you men out there who have gone through 
the same thing, you can understand my nervousness. The situation was such that I was in Manitoba, of course, there in Alberta, and so I had a narrow window with which to make the phone call to talk to her dad, and so I was on my lunch break at work. I was working in a hog barn at the time, and uh, so I got the phone, and I called him up, and I was just hoping that he'd be home too, and sure enough, he was. And so he thought it was great that I had called to chat with him, so we talked about the crops, we talked about the weather, we talked about the machinery. Uh, What else did we talk about? I don't even remember what we all talked about. So this went on for 15, 20 minutes. I only had a half hour to work with here, so I'm thinking, oh man, it's time that i gotta, I got to get up my courage here and I've got to break the ice and, and ask the question. So after all of that, I finally, somehow, I don't even know what I said, I got up the nerve and I said something like, so the real reason I called is, I love your daughter, I want to marry her, would I have your blessing to ask her to marry me? And I just blurted it out. And this was followed by the longest pause in the history of human conversation. Now, just for a little bit of context, Leanne's dad is already known for his slow, deliberate way of speaking in regular conversation. So at this point, I've got it all out there. My face is flushed. My mouth is sandpaper. My heart is pounding. And he's just leaving me hang. (laughs) But finally, finally, after long last, he says, Well, I guess we won't stand in your way. Now, he still claims that's not exactly what he said, but I know it was exactly what he said. Not quite the ringing endorsement that I was hoping for, but it was good enough for me. I went ahead with that, and to this day, I honestly don't know what I would have done if he had decided to mess with me even more and said he would stand in my way. I don't know (laughs) what I would have done. But like I said, for you husbands out there who have gone through the similar process, you know uh, what I was experiencing. But... Now, no matter how nervous I might have been in that situation, just take a leap of of imagination here, if you will. How nervous do you think you would be if your soon-to-be father-in-law had previously attempted to skewer you to the wall with a spear? Not once, but twice. Yeah, that would take the uh, (laughs) nervousness to a whole new level. And it sounds extreme, but this is exactly what happened to David. And of all the extreme in-law-slash-outlaw stories that there are, the family dynamics between Saul and David has got to top the list of being one of the most volatile in all of history. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 18, and there we'll continue our study. Now, as Henry read for us earlier, we've already seen that in this chapter there are four main plot lines that emerge. The first being Jonathan's friendship with David. Secondly, David's continued success and humble attitude. Third is Saul's jealousy of David. And fourth is the love story between David and Michal. And we will cover the first three of these today. Now, the first thing we see in verses 1 to 4 is Jonathan's friendship with David. And here we pick up the story of David, of course, incredibly following, or immediately following his incredible and highly improbable victory over the Philistine giant named Goliath. Now, if you go back a couple of weeks, you'll recall that David taking on the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world was not just a a long shot of him having victory. This was impossible. 
For David to have victory over this Philistine giant would have taken a miracle. If the Vegas odds makers had set the odds, it would have been something like a million to one against David. So the subsequent victory, of course, was nothing short of miraculous. Everyone was in awe. Their their mouths were agape. They couldn't believe that a shepherd boy had defeated the Philistine champion. And so as they consider this, they see clearly that this could not have come about in any other fashion than that God was with David. And so he gains great esteem and, and, of course, he becomes an immediate celebrity in the aftermath, especially when we consider that it was in this context that no one else had been willing to step to the plate. And so this impressive victory that David's faith achieved was something that caught Jonathan's attention. Now, you'll need to remember that Jonathan, of course, is a prince of the nation. He was there on the front lines beside his father. And so he, too, would have had the challenge issued to him personally. Will you come out? Will you be the one to fight the champion? And, of course, we know that Jonathan did not rise to the occasion. And so, in chapter 18 and verse 1, the first thing we see is that in the immediate aftermath of the victory, David has made a huge impression on Saul's son, Jonathan. And we read this. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. This is quite a statement for simply a first impression, if you will. To say that he became one in spirit. In this instance, he loved him as his own self. And it's the beginning of one of the most well-known friendships in the entire Bible. It's also one of the most unlikely friendships for a number of reasons. First, Jonathan is older than David. Now, we're not given the exact ages of either David or Jonathan at this point, but we can extrapolate from the wider context of the scripture that Jonathan is approximately 10 years older than David, and most scholars believe that at this point, David is either 17 or 18 years of age, and so Jonathan is 27 or 28. Now, a decade may not seem like that much of an age gap, but when you think about the context of a 28-year-old and an 18-year-old, that's not exactly the the age group that you would say that we're immediately going to become friends when you have that much in between. They were certainly not peers, to say the least. Now, secondly, Jonathan was from, of course, a much higher social status than David as well. You know, Jonathan is the crown prince of the nation, David, on the other hand, is just a humble shepherd boy and considered by his own family to be the runt of the litter and overlooked by almost everyone. Those two classes simply didn't mingle with each other. And thirdly, David was at this moment becoming a clear threat and rival to the throne. Because remember that as the crown prince, Jonathan was Saul's oldest son and therefore the heir to the throne. And as such, if anyone had a right to be jealous or envious of David, to view him as a threat, it would have been Jonathan. But Jonathan does not allow himself to have these feelings take over, to cloud his judgment or his thoughts about David. He doesn't allow these things to become a barrier. Instead, it says he reaches out to David and he loves him as his own self. The lesson that I believe we learn here from Jonathan is that true friendship is sacrificial in nature. True friendship is sacrificial. It willingly gives of itself for the good of the other. And it's clear that after having witnessed David's faith and courage in his victory over Goliath, Jonathan was not only impressed, 
but inspired by David. He saw in David things that resonated in his own spirit, faith, courage, and conviction. All of these things that made David a man after God's heart is what drew Jonathan to David. And verse 3 tells us that Jonathan initiated the friendship with David by making a covenant with him. Now, a covenant is something that in our day we don't really understand, but a covenant is a solemn pact. It is something that is intended to be permanent. A covenant was something spiritual in nature, not something to be broken or entered into lightly. And so for him to not just say, I'm becoming friends with you, but making a covenant with you is something very serious. And though the text is silent on this point, it is implied that Jonathan knew and believed that David was God's anointed and would be the next king of Israel. And so in a highly symbolic act, he seals the covenant by giving David his own royal robe, armor, bow, belt, and sword. Now this is highly significant. Aside from the obvious you know, implications that these are costly gifts given out of love, there is an added significance to what these gifts represent. You see, in that time, to give someone your sword, especially for the crown prince of a nation, to give someone else his royal sword, which would have been forged and given to him by his father, it symbolized handing over his authority. It symbolized giving to David his submission that I see you as God's anointed, and I am relinquishing my right to the throne. You see, Jonathan's armor and sword would have been his most prized possessions, made at considerable cost. And so to give these these to David symbolized a sacrificing of his birthright, and he was, in effect, relinquishing it to David. Here we see an act of tremendous self-sacrifice. True friendship is sacrificial. It willingly gives itself for the good of the other. As a result of Jonathan's gift, David is instantly transformed from the shepherd boy, clad in homespun clothing and furs, armed with only a stick and a sling. He is transformed like that into a prince, dressed in royal robes, clad in armor, and armed with the crown prince's own bow and sword. And we can't help but think in Jonathan's example a foreshadowing of what Jesus, the crown prince of heaven, would do for us. That Jesus laid down his life for us. Jesus said, no greater love has any man than that he lay down his life for his friends. And of course he demonstrated that love by going to the cross of Calvary, dying for your sins and mine in our place, so that we too, like David, could be transformed We were all dressed in those filthy, filthy rags of sin and self and our flesh and in our our sinfulness. And, And the Bible even says that all of our righteous deeds without Christ are like filthy rags before the Lord. That's what we are dressed in before Christ. But he sacrificed his throne. He came down, humbled himself, died on the cross in our place for our sins so that we could be transformed and put on God's robe of righteousness, that we could become a prince and a princess of heaven, to be adopted by the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so this is the example that we see in David, a foreshadowing of the gift of Jesus Christ for each one of us. True friendship, the kind that God gives, is sacrificial. And out of love, Jonathan gave to David, and out of love, Jesus gave his life for you and I. 
And so, my friends, what do you then suppose is God's desire for us to do for each other? What kind of a friend do you suppose that God wants you to be? What kind of a person in your relationships does he desire for you to be to your, to your spouse, to your children, to your peers, to your coworkers, to your family members, to your fellow church members, and even beyond that, to those you don't even know, to strangers, and perhaps even to those who would oppose you? First John chapter 4, verse 11, of course, answers that question. It says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let me ask you, when is the last time that you were a true friend to someone else? When is the last time that you sacrificially gave of yourself for the good of another? When is the last time that you did that? And let me just challenge you with this thought. If you are in Christ, if you have received his forgiveness for yourself, that is your calling, to be like him, to be like Jonathan, to willingly give of yourself for the good of another. This is the first thing that we see is the friendship between Jonathan and David. Secondly, as we continue in our text, we see David's ongoing success. Verse 5, whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. Now here we see that David is proving to everyone that he's not just a one-hit wonder. He didn't just make one fluky shot with a, with a slingshot and, and that's it. No, he's proving that he's a man of substance. He does everything in his life well and with enthusiasm. You see, David had learned the lessons of the wilderness and now he's prepared to rise to the next challenge. And naturally, all of this gives David instant celebrity status. So when the army returns home triumphantly, verses 6 and 7 tell us that The women greeted them with singing and dancing and rejoicing. David's success had lifted the spirit of the entire nation, and everyone is celebrating. What looked like defeat was now victory, and it was all because of David, and they are now singing his name. And now for a typical 18-year-old, you wonder how they're going to handle all of this newfound fame and celebrity status. People are chanting your name. David, David, the giant slayer. I I suspect that if this were me, I'm just throwing this out there as an 18-year-old, this all might have gone to my head just a little bit. But not David. Later on in verses 17 and 18, we see that when Saul offers his daughter's hand in marriage, David's humble reply is this, Who am I that I should become the king's son-in-law? And later, when a second offer is made, again we read David's humble reply, verse 23. Do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I am only a poor man and little known. You see, though David may not have had wealth to his name at this point, his name was well known. They were chanting it in the streets. And so here we see that though David's name was being sung in the streets, David had not allowed this to go to his head. He was not falling into the same trap of pride that had ensnared Saul. Instead, David was keeping his eyes fixed on God, the one who had given him the victory. You see, David understood that he had not defeated Goliath by his own skill or strength. He had declared that the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into my hand. David had not forgot that with the new celebrity status. He was deflecting the glory and giving it back to God. And this was keeping a proper and humble attitude about himself. And so he remembered that the glory 
always needs to be given to the Lord. The true story is told from the late 1800s of a time when a large group of European pastors came to America to attend one of the then great evangelist D.L. Moody's Bible conferences. Following the European custom of that time, each of the guests had put his shoes out in the hallway expecting that the hall servants would shine them overnight. But of course, in America and in this particular hotel, there were no such servants. And so, walking down the hallway that night, Moody happened to see the shoes, understood what was the expectation, and he decided he didn't want his friends from Europe to be embarrassed. And so he mentioned the need to some of the other students who were there, but was met with only silence and pious excuses. And so Moody returned to the hallway, gathered up all of the shoes, and took them to his room, where alone the famous evangelist began to clean and polish every last one of them all through the night. It was only the unexpected arrival of a friend in the midst of the work that revealed the secret. And when the foreign visitors opened their doors the next morning, their shoes were shined and polished just as they had expected. They believed the hall staff had done it. They never knew that it was in fact the man whom they had come across an ocean to hear speak who had shined their shoes that night. Moody told no one, but the friend who had found him doing it that night told a few people. And during the rest of the conference, different men, inspired by his example, volunteered to shine the shoes in secret each and every night. And perhaps the episode is a vital insight into why God used D.L. Moody in such an incredible fashion. He was a man with a servant's heart, and that was the basis of his true greatness. And we see this same example in David. He had a servant's heart. Everything he did, he did well and with enthusiasm. Nothing was beneath him. Whatever Saul sent him to do, he did it well. And we can imagine that Saul didn't have a great eye on David at this point, and he sent him to do some pretty low jobs, but he still did them so well that all the people were impressed by him. And from this we see that when we serve the Lord with enthusiasm, with humility, giving him the glory, no matter how base the job is, God receives the glory. He grants the success in it and through it. And so his kingdom is advanced. Now thirdly, we move on to the final act that we are going to look at in this chapter, the main act, if you will, Saul's growing jealousy of David. Now, though David may not have allowed his sudden fame to go to his head, it pierced straight through Saul's giant-sized ego like a dagger. Verse 7 tells us that the songs that the women were singing upon their return went like this. I love this song. It's one of my favorite songs in the entire Bible because it always makes me laugh. It went like this. Verse 7, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now, I wish we knew what the melody was, that we could actually sing it to know exactly how it went. You know, but can you just imagine this? They're coming down the street, everyone's got their chests out, they're victorious in battle, everyone's chanting, and then this refrain hits their ears. Saul's, yeah, he's pretty good, thousands. David, he's the new kid on the block. He's the one everyone wants to sing about, tens of thousands. And of of course, verse 8 Saul was angry, very angry. This refrain galled him, it says. They have credited David with tens of thousands, but me with only thousands. What more can he gain but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. You've just got to love this, don't you? David's combat resume to date. As far as we know, his combat resume to date had one victory. 
Yes, it was a giant-sized victory. Yes, it was Goliath, but it was one man. He had had one victory, and they're accrediting him with tens of thousands. You've got to love how stories just balloon like that. And, and so here, he's credited with, with tens of thousands. It's just like the tabloid magazines today, isn't it? You, you grab onto a kernel of truth, and you just blow it all out of proportion. You know, perhaps a little bit closer to home. Isn't that how gossip works a little bit, too? We grab onto just a little something, and it just grows and grows and grows until one victory turns into 10,000. And it can also go the opposite way with a negative. And so, nonetheless, here we see that the result of this song is that Saul is furious. First of all, for valid reason, Saul's combat resume of thousands is accurate and hard-earned. Saul had been in countless battles. He had, he had fought countless times at great danger to his person. And so now, from his vantage point, some young punk is going to come. He can barely grow a, fe- a peach fuzz beard. And, and this young punk is going to come and steal his thunder? I don't think so. This is not sitting well with Saul. And so here in his jealousy... He recognizes the same threat that David is to the throne. He recognizes that he is now a rival. He says, what can he gain but the kingdom? And this jealousy begins gnawing away at Saul, and it begins him on a long descent into an ever-darkening pit of madness. And this is where things start to get very, very dangerous for David. Verse 10 tells us that the very next day, as David is playing his harp for Saul as usual... Remember, he's still doing all the same things as before. He's serving. He's playing his harp with enthusiasm. As this is happening, the same evil spirit that had begun to afflict Saul after God's spirit had departed him came forcefully upon Saul, the text says. Now in the past, remember, David's music when he played the harp had soothed soothed Saul when this had happened. But now it becomes the focal point. This evil spirit comes upon Saul He's so afflicted in his spirit and his mind. David's playing the harp and he becomes the focal point. His jealousy, his anger, his hatred all gets just like a laser beam right on David. And he has a spear in his hand. And suddenly a murderous thought crosses his mind. I'm sure this thought came from the enemy. I'll just pin David to the wall and all of this will be over. And so without a second thought, he takes the spear and he hurls it at David. Now at this point, the text is silent on whether Saul just had bad aim or if David saw it coming and dodged. But either way, David avoided becoming a piece of wall art, just barely. And this happens, the text says, not once, but twice. And it brings up the old saying about fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Well, in this instance... David was targeted twice, and I don't know what Saul had to do or to say to convince David to come back the second time, but what is absolutely incredible to me is that even after Saul has tried murdering him, David returns. And the confidence that David displayed in returning, coupled with his refusal to defend himself or to turn against Saul or to even say, like, hey, why are you doing this? It just completely unnerves the king. In verse 12, we read this telling statement. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed Saul. You see, in David, Saul sees what he himself had once been. He sees him a humble, courageous, and anointed by God's Spirit. 
And perhaps for the first time, Saul recognizes just how far he strayed from God. I believe that in this moment of clarity, God was mercifully giving Saul one last opportunity to repent and return to him. But what does Saul do instead? He sends David away on campaigns, sends him out against the Philistines, and later on we read that he does so hoping that he would be killed by the Philistines in battle. Saul allowed his pride, his anger, and finally his murderous jealousy to chart him on a sure path towards self-destruction. There's a fable told of two eagles. The one eagle could soar higher than the other eagle, and the first eagle didn't like it one bit. He was jealous, and so the, the latter eagle, who wasn't able to soar as high as the other, he saw a hunter one day, and he said to the hunter, I wish you would bring down that eagle up there. The hunter replied that he would if only he had some feathers to put into the arrow. And so the eagle pulled out one of his own feathers. The hunter took the feather, attached it to the arrow. The arrow was shot, but it didn't quite reach the soaring eagle. It was flying just too high. The envious eagle then pulled out more feathers and kept pulling them out until at last he had lost so many of his own feathers that he couldn't fly any longer. And finally, having given the hunter his last feather, the hunter turned around and killed the eagle with the arrow guided by his own feathers. This fable is an accurate picture of what jealousy does. We think we are out to get the other. We're going to bring them down to our level, but in the end it brings us down. And this is what happened to King Saul. As David continued to soar higher and higher, Saul spiraled downward. And the lesson for us, of course, is obvious. Jealousy destroys relationships and lives. Jealousy and its twin sister of envy have brought down more families, more kingdoms than we could ever imagine. It is destructive. It is a seed always sown by the enemy. And when we give into it, jealousy destroys, plain and simple. So let me ask you, are you struggling with jealousy today? Are you struggling with envy? Then choose today to follow the example of Jonathan and not Saul. Follow Jonathan's example and not Saul. But what do you do then if, like David, perhaps you're being targeted by someone else through no fault of your own? What do you do when someone tries to pin you to the wall? Hopefully not literally. But what happens? What do you do? How do you respond? The answer to that is simple to understand, but incredibly hard to do. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43, Jesus said this, You have heard that it was said, love your your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Then following that up in Romans 12 verse 14, Paul writes, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. And now all of us are going to go through times similar to this. All of us have probably been through times in our life where people hurt us. Times where people have cheated us, people have insulted us, perhaps people have even stabbed you in the back. Perhaps you have done everything possible to mend, mend fences and build bridges, but they're intent on hurling spears at you in return. How, how long are you to tolerate that? How long until you can raise your fist in anger and strike back? How long? Jesus says, be like me. Be merciful to your enemies. Pray for them. Love them. Don't just tolerate them, but actively seek ways to bless them. So now we have to ask, does this still apply when it involves business practices or dealings? Does this apply when a partner or even a family member pulls an underhanded move to get ahead? 
You bet it does. David's example is a powerful one. Though he had done absolutely nothing wrong to deserve the treatment he was receiving from Saul, we do not read one word of complaint and not even a hint of David seeking retribution against Saul. Instead, he continues to serve Saul faithfully and loyally, just as he had done before. My friends, that kind of strength of character, that kind of forgiveness, that kind of love can only come from God. And so if you're trying to do these things on your own, in your own strength today, and you're falling short, don't be surprised. These things are too high for us to muster up good feelings or grit our teeth and will our way into acting this way. Like David, we have to seek God's heart, and he will give us his strength to follow in his ways. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for this incredible story. We thank you so much for the incredible example of David and also of Jonathan a friend who is willing to sacrificially give of himself. And in this, Lord Jesus, we see what you have done for us. You are a friend unlike any other. You are a friend who gave your own life for ours. And so, Lord, we come to you humbly today and we say thank you. And even more than that, Lord, we pray and we ask, give us the strength to be that kind of a friend to others. Give us the strength to be like David and to forgive those who would try to pin us to the wall. And Lord, if there's a situation right here today that your Holy Spirit is illuminating in someone's heart, God, that they're just saying, I can't forgive that person. What they did, it just goes too deep. Oh Lord, I pray that right now by your Holy Spirit, would you show them that nothing is too deep, nothing is too great, where your Spirit and the incredible power of forgiveness cannot bring freedom and liberation. And so, God, by your power, we pray, would you grant the strength to say, I choose this day to forgive and to bless. And we pray that you would unleash your power through that. In Jesus' name, bless your people, I pray. Amen.